Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this podcast, Dr. Samantha Thomas, Senior Research Fellow and Public Health Academic at the Department of Marketing at Monash University in Australia. Published widely on the issue that we're going to talk about today, weight bias and stigma, Dr. Thomas was chosen as one of Australia's top 10 emerging leaders in health by the leading national newspaper, The Australian. She's been highly effective at getting the message out, not just doing research on this and academic work, but getting the message out, and has really been effective at mobilizing uh, what's looking like a building social movement in the country of Australia. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by uh, you telling me how you got interested in this issue of weight bias and stigma. It's a terribly important issue, but not enough people are are working on it. What led you to get interested? Yeah, I agree with you. And it's surprising because it's such an important issue. Um, so I had a background in working in mental health stigma. So my PhD was in this area and we looked at long-term survivors of the psychiatric system in, in New Zealand. Um, and when I came to Australia after a, a transition through a number of different countries and working at the WHO, I started to notice that there was this huge emphasis on the prevalence of obesity. Lots of statistics reported, lots of quite hysterical reporting about the tsunami of obesity that was going to overtake Australia. So whilst there was lots of statistics in the papers, nowhere do we ever, ever see the real life experiences of fat people talking about what their life was like. And so we started a project in 2007 called Being Fat, and it was really one of the first opportunities in Australia where people could talk about their experiences, their social experiences, their health experiences, how they felt about themselves. And one of the main things that came out of that study was the experience of stigma. And what we found in that study was that 100% of the people that we interviewed found that stigma was a key, key factor in their lives as a fat person. You know, one thing you must have really accomplished is giving people a voice. I would imagine that so few people ever ask overweight individuals what their experience is and input into how things like campaigns should be run, that just giving them a voice must have been liberating for a number of them. Absolutely, and we've never, ever had any problem with recruiting people for our studies, and that shows how much people want to start to talk about this. How many people listening to this podcast have been sat in a meeting designing an intervention for obesity or a community program or a campaign where there's never, ever been a fat person in the room? We somehow systematically exclude people from the design of our policies and our interventions. That doesn't really make any sense. And we really wanted to start to ask people what they thought about public health policy, the campaigns that were being run, but also how they're impacting on their lives and really the public gaze on obesity in Australia. So what sort of things did you hear from people? I mean, what sort of stigmatizing Um, events had they been exposed to in their lives? So we found that people had really three different types of clusters of experience. And in Australia, you've got to remember that we're a pretty clean, healthy, living bunch. And and really to be fat in Australia is almost unpatriotic. And so when we talked to people, we could group their experiences of stigma into three different areas. The first was direct stigma. So that's people going for a walk and having someone yell something out of a car to them. Um, We had lots of experiences from people where they were in their local swimming pools and people would make fun of their weight or call them a whale and and so on. Um, The second type of stigma we noticed was environmental. 
So that's things like university students talking about not going to their lectures because the seats weren't big enough for them to sit in or having to pay for two seats on an airline or going to their doctor's waiting room and having to stand or being weighed in the, in the waiting room rather than the, in the doctor's office. Um, and the final type of stigma we heard about, which really has the most impact on people, is what we call insidious stigma. And this is stigma that's really, really hard to define because a lot of it is perceived. So that's things like, I'm doing my grocery shopping and I know that people are looking at the packet of cho chocolate biscuits in my trolley. And what we found was that the insidious stigma was having the most impact on people's health and well-being, and particularly in their, their emotional health, but it was the combination of those three different types of stigma that was preventing people from engaging in activity, from having social relationships, from aspiring to dreams and you know, gaining a job and so on. I remember one uh, story in particular from someone who said that their office um, always had their team meetings in a room which had very low couches. And she always had to make an excuse not to go to her department meeting because she knew that it was incredibly difficult and embarrassing for her to get up out of that couch. Now that's a tragedy and it's something that's really easily solved, but something that we don't talk about and in many ways something that we don't want to hear. So you, you made it pretty clear that there are moments of acute and intense embarrassment that people experience when they're the victims of weight stigma. But you also mentioned health and well-being. What happens when what happens to people that are the 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 when they've experienced this weight stigma over a long period of time? How does it affect their psychological well-being, their health, and things? Sure. Well, we find it um, impacts in a number of ways in terms of their emotional health and well-being, their psychological health and well-being. We notice that people are becoming more and more isolated. So they don't want to go out. They're finding it difficult to go out the door. Um, it impacts on their self-esteem, levels of anxiety, depression, suicide in some cases. But also it impacts on people's ability to engage and connect. It impacts on their ability to have a voice in the first place, to tell their doctor that they don't like the way that he's speaking to them, um, to talk to their friends about their weight in a positive way or in a healthy way. And the final impact that it has in is in terms of the solutions that people engage in. So what we find with stigma is that far from engaging in healthy behaviours or stimulating people to, I don't know, um, engage in healthy amounts of activity or eat healthy foods, what it does is it drives people to extreme solutions. So what we see in Australia is that stigma really is causing people to go down extreme dieting or weight loss pathways. And as health professionals and public health people, that's an incredibly concerning finding. You, um, at the talk that you just gave at the Rudd Center, you pointed out examples of government campaigns to deal with obesity or private organizations like health organizations, some of the things that they've done that you think might be counterproductive, uh, ineffective, yeah, at the very least, and perhaps even counterproductive. Could you give some examples of those? Sure. So if you think about our campaigning strategies for obesity, and particularly in Australia, we have a very top-down process of campaigning. So most of the media messages that we give are like a parent telling his child that he's been naughty. So you know what it's like if you have kids, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and the kid still does it and does it and does it, right? And then sometimes rebels and does it even more. And yet we still continue with this process of campaigning in Australia that's based very much on fear, very much on risk factors, so your health is at risk, you need to be changing your behaviour. 
but also that are completely about taking personal responsibility for yourself. And I think in many ways, this personal responsibility rhetoric has been one of the most damaging things that we've done in obesity. So we're not looking to support people, we're asking people to take responsibility for themselves and change their behaviors. And so in terms of the campaigns, we see that this has been ramped up more and more and more, that many of the campaigns are about scary information that don't connect with people and that really are pushing people further and further and further away from the messages that we're trying to give about health and well-being and really becoming a um, changing people's lifestyle behaviours and so on. So what the campaigns in Australia do is they base all of the campaigning on health risk. If you're over this weight, you're gonna develop cancer and type two diabetes. If your waist is over this number of centimeters, you're gonna develop cancer and type two diabetes. There's nothing positive or supportive or encouraging. And in a way, it's created a whole bunch of unintended consequences that we never ever could have foreseen with this type of campaigning in, a, in the area of obesity. And, and you've done some, some work where you've questioned people who are overweight about their responses to these kind of campaigns. What do they tell you? Right, and so a lot of the things that they tell us are about those unintended consequences. I guess the first thing is that um, people say that they focus on the wrong health risk. So if you talk to people who are extremely overweight or who are over their most healthy weight, some of the things that they talk about most in terms of their health and well-being are the emotional consequences of being fat. And yet in our public health campaigns, all we focus on are the physical consequences of being overweight. And so one of the things that people came out very strongly and said was that they wanted campaigns which started to look at emotional consequences rather than always focusing on physical health risk. The second thing that people told us was that they were overly simplistic and they were focusing on the wrong outcome. So they were focusing on weight loss rather than the health behaviors that you could change to improve your health. And one of the things that we talk about is that we focus on the wrong W. We focus on weight and not well-being. People also told us that the campaigns were incredibly stigmatizing, that it blamed them, it shamed them, it assumed that they could change just if they tried um, tried harder, if they took more responsibility. It's kind of like the biggest loser, right? The same sort of message, yeah? If you just try hard enough, you can do it because everyone can. It's not that difficult to stop eating and to start moving more. Um, and I guess the final thing was um, the unintended consequences that this had in terms of the other people who weren't the targets of the campaigns, but who were still viewing viewing these campaigns. So we heard a lot from parents who talked in particularly about a campaign which involved um, overweight parents and thin children, um, talking about how their kids were increasingly scared that their parents would drop dead because of their weight. And for me, that's incredibly concerning, both in terms of not doing any harm in public health to the people that we're trying to help and support, but also the potential consequences in terms of kids' activity and eating behaviours and what they think about their bodies. Um, so in a, that's kind of the range of different types of things that we saw within the, within the study. So what I'm about to say is not my own belief, but how would you react to the the argument that overweight people are overweight and there's not really too much you can do about it because it's such a difficult problem. So those scare tactics are really aimed at the people who aren't yet overweight and that those messages might scare them into not becoming so uh, and that they might be effective, but you didn't happen to pick that up because you interviewed only people who are already overweight. Right, absolutely. And, and that's one of the comebacks from public health and, and from the people that create these cam campaigns is that they're not designed for fat people. They're designed for people like me, who are slightly overweight, who are in that average range, to prevent us from becoming fat. 
Now that may be true, and it may be that these campaigns affect a small behaviour change in that group, but what they do is they distance many, many more people than they help and support. And so I guess for me, the question I would ask is, do we have to give scare campaigns? Is there another way of doing things that are more positive and helpful and that can reach a much greater number of people, no matter what their size? I think we'd all agree that independent of weight loss, there are lots of different things that fat people can do um, to improve their health and well-being, whether it be about engaging in activity, about making social connections to improve their, their emotional health and so on. And so I guess what we're asking for and what people are telling us is that they want a reframing in the way that we give this message and maybe a completely different emphasis in the message. So you mentioned that um, you, you, you have concerns that these campaigns don't work. Is there any empirical evidence on the effectiveness of these scare campaigns? Yep. So there have been lots of kind of systematic reviews of, that have been done on scare campaigns. And we generally know that they work in some very discrete issues, but they generally don't work in other more complex issues. Um, in obesity in particular, we know that scare campaigns are likely to be ineffective because of the amount of guilt and shame that people feel about their weight. So we know that scare campaigns um, can help in discrete issues, road traffic, for example, but are less likely to help in areas where people feel very bad about their health and well-being. Um, I guess the the sign of that and the sign that we found in our research were the number of people that were pushing back against the campaign or the number of people that felt they had to justify their behaviours based upon this particular campaign. So we heard lots of people talking about what I call the responsible citizen um, rhetoric, which is, I don't do that. I don't eat a hamburger and fries every day. I make sure that I see my doctor every single week to make sure my health is all right. I exercise three times a day, but I'm, but I'm fat and so on. And so we're really starting to see a pushback from the community um, in terms of this type of campaigning. Unfortunately, the medical profession and, and many campaigners still see this as an effective way to change behavior when so there's no evidence for this. At all. If you were the, the czar of campaigns, what kind of things would you construct and what sort of messages would you see being the best? Right. Well, I think the first thing I'd do would be to talk to people. And that's something we don't do. We assume that we know best for people and for the community. And when you talk to people, they tell you a very, very different thing about what they want. Um, it's really interesting to me how, how much people connect with the message that the weight loss industry gives, which is kind and caring and nurturing and supportive, even though the product is extremely flawed and may actually do people more harm than good. People love that message. They love what they're selling. Um, so if I were to, com to create campaigns, can we think completely differently about the way that government, for example, campaigns? For example, can we start to use government campaigning to help people challenge some of the things that the weight loss and the food industry are doing? Can we use campaigns to make them mad about the way that they're being exploited by industry? Can we start to use campaigns to look at positive behaviours rather than always that drop in BMI as the key outcome? Can we start to use campaigns to encourage people to connect through social media, um, to show people that there is a supportive community that they can turn to in times of support when um, they've been stigmatised or they felt, felt blamed and shamed? Um, certainly we're seeing that that's happening anyway, but maybe government has a terrific role in starting to make that more broadly applicable to so many people who feel so isolated. So it sounds like you, you believe that government could simultaneously 
address the obesity issue, but protect the, the rights and the dignity of the people who have the problem. Yeah, that's spot on. Okay. And I think they can. And I think sometimes I think we think campaigning is kind of has to be a one size fits all solution for everyone. And and if we think about social marketing, campaigns only have campaigning's only a very small part of a whole range of responses to, in this case, obesity. But it's a really important part because it creates an awareness of something. It starts to get people thinking um, about ways that they can improve their lives or ways that they can respond or ways that they can discuss this issue with their friends. Maybe what we need to do is to start giving a, is, is to stop giving a top-down message and to start designing campaigns which help people engage in conversations. So what do you think it would take for government or, say, the health societies like the Cancer Society or the Heart Association to be persuaded that this different kind of an approach would be helpful? Do you think if they saw a, a, a controlled study, for example, that the traditional scare campaigns weren't working but this new approach would, do you think they would be persuaded? Um, I would hope so, but I think they're a hard group to shift. I mean, it's interesting. There are many different groups with many different interests, um, and particularly in the area of obesity. But I certainly think that we need more empirical evidence. We need more interdisciplinary coming together of public health people with marketers and branders and advertising groups to start to think through how we can create more effective and positive campaigns. We certainly need more evidence, and we're really excited to be now doing some some work and planning projects with Rebecca Poole, who's at your centre, to start to test the different resonance that people have with the different types of messages that we give. Now, there's kind of a caveat. Giving a positive message doesn't necessarily mean that it changes behaviour, just in the same way that scare campaigning doesn't necessarily change behaviour. But giving a positive message is probably unlikely to make things worse. It's probably unlikely to hurt people. And so can we start to think of a creative way to give a message that people resonate with, that people feel applies to them and to their daily lives, but also how do we layer that message to different subgroups? Can we break that down to start giving not only a one-size-fits-all message, but also messages to different groups? Men need a completely different message from women, for example. Um, And I think once we start to build that evidence base and once we start to show that there is an alternative, then it will be, I think, more easily picked up by government. Yeah, I can see several things at work. This question about whether if there were evidence that the more positive-oriented campaign you're talking about would work better than the scare techniques, whether government would listen and the voluntary health organizations would listen. I can see it going in one of two ways. The, you know, People in these organizations are like every other human being, and weight bias is so rampant that those people would be experiencing it themselves, and it would be hard to get them over it, even with empirical evidence. But on the other hand, government, I think, for the most part is well-meaning, and these organizations certainly are well-meaning, and they're trying to help. So you'd think that that evidence like this would be persuasive. And the combination of the kind of stories that come out of this that I think you tell so effectively and the kind of testing, and you're doing some of that yourself, could be a pretty powerful way to convince people that something's wrong with this, the the general approach that gets used and something ought to be done. And I think when you listen to people's stories, when you listen to people describe the incredible negative impact that some of these things have on them, how can you not be compelled to change? 
Well, I know you tell stories, you use the word resonance, which is interesting here, that some of the things that you've done through the social media have really attracted a lot of attention from people. Can you give some examples of those? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm really a firm believer, and it's probably become, because I come from a policy or grassroots background, that we need to be talking with people, that we need to be engaging in a dialogue with people about this. You know, as, um, as a thinner person, can I really relate and understand to the, experience, the experiences of a fat person? Well, I don't, I don't live in a fat body, but I can listen and I can empathize and I can understand and I can try and use that information to create change. I think in terms of social media, we have seen the most phenomenal response to, to weight-based stigma. Um, we have, um, I have a, a Twitter account and I use that very actively. Um, we've also created a specialized Twitter account called Fat Stigma in which people send us experiences that they've had or images from papers or when they're out shopping and they see an ad which is stigmatizing, they send it. And we post that on the account and then it gets shared dozens and dozens of times. One of, I think, the most um, incredible things that happened recently on social media was a hashtag. So on Twitter, there are kind of ways that you can uh, point to different topic areas um, and it's called a hashtag. So we created a, a hashtag called Things Fat People Are Told. And within two days, there were thousands and thousands of people who responded and used this hashtag to show the experiences that they had, had received in every single facet of their life, from their health providers to um, something that their father had told them to a colleague asking them if they'd ever considered dieting and so on. And I guess that shows that people want to start to share this story. Um, I think for me, one of the most profound stories I heard was a woman who had recently experienced a miscarriage um, and bumped into a friend on the street a couple of days later and the friend said to her well it's just as well you lost the baby you wouldn't have wanted to have had a baby at your weight and that sounds shocking to people but you this can imagine is, how hurtful that would be absolutely this is an everyday experience for people and even the most robust people experience this you know we know now and you know we have so much evidence to show that mental health stigma is harmful to show that stigma towards people according to their race or sexuality is harmful why do we think differently about weight so let me end with the, the, the question about the future. Is there a reason to be optimistic? Are you seeing positive signs in this arena? I think the thing that makes me most optimistic is the courage of people who are fat and their commitment to starting to fight back against the stigma that they're receiving. And I think once we have that community voice and once people start speaking about this and feel able and supported and encouraged to speak about this, I think we have no choice but to listen. I think health providers, when we see people starting blogs which give lists of health providers that give great service to fat people and not so great for stigmatizing service to fat people, I think health providers are going to be forced to make a change. Once we start listening and understanding, I'm really, really optimistic that we're going to see a great, great shift in the way that we treat fat people in our community. Well, it's very nice to hear your optimism, and, and you've been so powerful in giving people a voice and, and providing them a means for starting to organize like this that 
um, it's greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. So our guest today was Dr. Samantha Thomas, Senior Research Fellow and Public Health Academic at the Department of Marketing at Monash University in Australia. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. There you'll find a variety of resources on food policy issue, an email newsletter that gets distributed monthly at no cost, of course, and a variety of uh, other podcasts that we have links to of excellent visitors to the Rudd Center. Thank you.